Welcome to Baguan Radio. In today's episode, we have a very special guest, my friend Yi Peng, a seasoned entrepreneur from China. He has built an impressive global business. His incredible 15 years of journey perfectly reflect the evolution of China's business community in the past decades. Yi Peng started his entrepreneurial journey in Beijing, right when Premier Li Keqiang's massive entrepreneurial and massive innovation initiative was gaining momentum. From there, he ventured into the bustling city of New York, along with countless other investors. Finding investment opportunities during the peak of Sino-U.S. relationship, but Yipeng's story didn't end there. He made a strategic return to China and led a remarkable buyout of a publicly listed company. And in the past couple of years, he has set his sight on new horizons: Southeast Asia, Africa, and Central Asia. So today, we're going to dive deep into Yipeng's mindset and explore the reason behind his strategic shift. Why did he choose these regions over advanced economies? Yi Peng's journey is not just his own. It represents the story of countless Chinese entrepreneurs who have embarked on global adventures. These stories often remain hidden from public eyes, as there's a saying in China that goes, "Make big money quietly, 闷声发大财 But today we have the privilege of unveiling the remarkable thinking behind these entrepreneurs. Yi Peng, can you tell us about your business experience? My experience expanding from Investor, venture investor, startup owner, and we call it entrepreneurial. It's more like a businessman in different area. I have been in social network, early stage venture capital, consumer product, and right now I am in automotive business. So it's kind of very disconnected in my different stage of business experience. It's actually my. Philosophy. We just need to find the right product market fit, and apply your knowledge and know-how to organize a bunch of people to deliver something. I have been in China, been in U.S., been now been in Singapore, and been in Africa. The market is so different. That actually gave me a very full span of understanding of different markets and different business sectors. I met you ten years ago in New York. That's when you finish your first ventures. I think you time it very, pretty perfectly. Right? It's a chronicle of how China's business in general move. You're riding on, from my point of view, you're riding on the macro trend. First of all, there was this massive startup culture that was promoted by previous premier Li Keqiang, Guangdong Chuanye. That's where you got into the social media startups, and then there was wave of Chinese investor. Going to the states at the peak of Sino-U.S. relationship to find investment opportunities. That's actually prior to CFIS. After that, you came back to China. That's when Chinese company becoming mature and some of the public company wanted to do something different. Right. Recently, because of various reasons, you know, many of the Chinese company entrepreneurs are going overseas and seeking new opportunities across different countries. At that point, you started to. Based in Singapore, let's jump to the recent years first because I think that's where most of our readers care more about.、Right? There's saying about Chinese going overseas reactively, but it could be a proactive initiative, maybe driven by new opportunities overseas, maybe driven by the Belt and Road initiatives. So, Southeast Asia, can you share about what you're seeing on the Chinese entrepreneurs doing business there? 
especially the recent generation of Chinese entrepreneurs. So before I answer this question, I do echo about your summarize about my experience. Like, so in the real view, it's like I'm riding a macro chain, but there are three major shifts of mm -hmm. my from China to US, from US to China, and then I go from China to Singapore. In among those like three major shifts, I think only one is actually macro driven. Mm -hmm. I do some proactive analysis. I do some prediction. Then I follow shooting. I go to US, go back from US to China. It's all personal driving. Mm -hmm. That's just like a coincidence or lucky. I fit in that kind of like good old days of China-US relationship. Mm -hmm. It equipped me with the international background, international thinking of those stuff. But the last one, the South Asia, the last one is actually quite micro-driven. I decide I need to, given the current situation of the international micro environment, I want to put my, most of my attention in outside of China market. And luckily I have a Singapore base before that. I've done some macro research and then you decide to move to Singapore. Mm -hmm. How have you been doing it? I remember you have moved there during COVID. During COVID, right? yes. So that's two to three years already. Yeah, right? almost one year, one year, one, one and a half you have successfully established a very robust entrepreneurial network in Singapore and surrounding countries. And you have seen a lot because you, you also mm -hmm. you know, were a partner of a leading investment funds. You got access to a lot of startups and companies. Mm -hmm. So can you share some of the insight you see there? If we focus on the Chinese entrepreneur in South Asia, it's a very comfortable first stop for those Chinese entrepreneur because like South Asia is really like a backyard of China, backyard of ethnic Chinese. We have a bunch of already very successful Chinese entrepreneurs, even Chinese state-owned enterprises, Chinese other companies. They already have their footprints all over the South Asia. So for the newest wave of Chinese entrepreneur going outside of China, South Asia can be a great skill of moving out of China. It's more like they move into a 0.5 outside of China. It's not a totally outside of China. They can still do business with a very large and extensive Chinese-dominated business community. Mm -hmm. When I say Chinese, it's more like ethnically Chinese. They can rely on a Chinese-dominated sales channels, all those big tycoon their family are kind of like ethnic Chinese. They understand China. Yeah. They can speak Chinese. It's like doing something with a, a bunch of other Chinese groups. Right. This can be a very useful and efficient zero-to-one strategy for mm -hmm. those newest wave of Chinese entrepreneurs. So that's my observation. For example, in Singapore, I think I don't need to describe how Singapore is Chinese-friendly. You can see it like it's kind of a Chinese city. Mm -hmm very easy to live, even for like Chinese-only speaking mm -hmm. uh, communities. And uh, it's very robust and very convenient, like any Chinese city. When you don't have a full understanding of how outside of China works, you go to South Asia. Mm -hmm. That's much easier. That's globalization. That's a stepstone for your real globalization. Uh, and uh, other than this, the local market their living condition, their economic stage, their culture. It's very similar to China for mm -hmm. you to apply some of your Chinese know-how to local market. 
whether it's Thailand, Vietnam, Indonesia, mainly Chinese business model can work. And even you are traveling, it's really like a time machine. You can see in Vietnam, mm -hmm. it's really like 15 years ago mm -hmm. of China. In Indonesia, it's like 20 years ago of China. And many know-how you can just copy from China. Mm -hmm. that's, a, that's an easy way to apply your Chinese, uh, Chinese business model and to mm -hmm. get a, a sense of how to manage your multinational business. Um, basically, that's that's two takeaway. Yes, mm -hmm. one is uh, local Chinese can help you. Mm -hmm. The second is a local market is much similar to Chinese market, much more similar than even Japan, mm -hmm. South Korea, then of course even more similar than the Europe and the U.S. market. Let alone those like Latin America, Africa, Middle East market. Did you see a? increase of Chinese entrepreneurs going to Southeast Asia in recent two to three years? Of course, for sure. That's so you have explained how new Chinese entrepreneurs find their footings in Southeast Asia. We also know that once they settle down, they started to evolve into an ecosystem similar to PayPal Mafia. One of the typical cases was Oppo Vivo Group, the head of Indonesia for that group, spun off to create JNT Logistic, which is in the pipeline for IPO. And then some of the members of JNT Logistic spun off to do something else. It's quite different from last generation of Chinese entrepreneurs who came to Southeast Asia and run things on their own. As for what you mentioned, specifically mm -hmm. for those like G2, or we call it Oppo Viva Gang, mm -hmm. they reapply their loha in mm -hmm. Oppo Viva. What's the real loha of Oppo Viva is how do you manage a local franchise network. Mm -hmm. How do you manage lots of like distributors in the local market and in different, actually in a different international market? Mm. How do you manage those extensive network of distributors, sales, and after service? When those entrepreneurs finish their kind of learning from Operator and Genty, they start to do new business. It's still in that arena. You can see like many consumer products startups, what they are doing is still trying to establish a quite massive distributed network. And it's because they have the management experience, they have trained labor force or management managers to manage like a very large franchise network across the whole country. That's a breakthrough of cross-country integrations mm -hmm. uh, in terms of logistics. Uh, previously, Shopee have broken through on the front end mm -hmm. establishing network to target different countries and there's Grab, there's there's Gojek to integrate uh, across different countries. Now the integration of underlying logistics being broken through by JNT. That's actually in line with what the ASEAN government is trying to do, which is the integration of the ASEAN countries. Concurrently you also have business in Africa, mm -hmm. Nigeria. That's a much more interesting topic for me. Okay. So can you tell us more about that one? Uh, as well as the Chinese community in Nigeria and Africa. Although I'm living in South Asia, I'm more confident to talk about Africa mm. than South Asia. Because South Asia, like, I don't have real business going on in South Asia other than uh, living there. I think like, and comparing to Africa, South Asia is much more crowded for Chinese already. We don't call it emerging market. Mm -hmm. It's kind of already mature in some sense. 
but for Africa, it's still a frontier market for most of the Chinese, and uh, for like even those like uh, already doing cross border business, already doing overseas business of Chinese entrepreneur, it's still a frontier market, an emerging market for them. So when we talk about Africa, we need to know Africa is a very large geographical concept. Usually, when we talk about Africa, it's actually about like sub-Sahara Africa. It's not including the North Africa, mm-hmm. uh, which which includes yeah. including countries like Egypt, mm-hmm. uh, Libya, yeah. Morocco, yeah. which uh, recently had a very terrible earthquake. Those countries are more South Africa area. Yeah. They are more economically connected. They are all around the Middle Terrain Sea. When we talk about Africa, it's, it's actually sub-Sahara Africa. Within sub-Sahara Africa, there are East Africa, West Africa, and Southern Africa, mm. including South Africa and other Southern Africa countries. Mm. And there are Middle Africa, people talk, talk less because it's less developed. My business is more on West Africa, mm. and the largest country is Nigeria. At the same time, Nigeria is the largest African country in terms of population and in terms of economic size. Nigeria alone has a 220 million population, mm. of the youngest country in the world. The median age is around 18 something. It's mm. 10 years younger than Vietnam. The GDP per capita is around like 2,000 USD. It's uh, at a middle 90s level of China. Mm. If you are like a post 80s, you can still remember your childhood economic social situation of China. Mm-hmm. You can kind of echo what it looks now. What's the difference is it's not a socialist country for sure. Mm-hmm. So the let's say the wealth distribution is much unequal, much more unequal than what you remember about China. So what we do there, we actually serve we call it like a high income people of local market. We sell cars to the local market but with a the relative higher price is over 30,000 mm-hmm. USD. It's not cheaper even in China, but uh, we are enjoy, enjoying a very high purchase power from that group in that market. i give you a general uh, understanding of the West African market. Its income level is very diverse. diverse. And you can choose what income level you want to go in, you want to serve. And there's no real Chinese community there. It's mm-hmm. far away from China. Even in the big city, Lagos, they have 21 million people living there. I think the Chinese community is less than 100K, mm-hmm. including many Chinese state-owned infrastructure companies, mm-hmm. all those big Chinese construction companies. They are more in infrastructure part. It's not usually integrated in local market. It's in government projects. So for the real market-oriented sector, it's even less. Mm. The, the biggest outside business community is actually from India, from Middle East. Mm-hmm. They're much more active than Chinese entrepreneurs, Chinese businesses there. So you have established a car dealership there, actually it's been very successful, right? Um, I remember sometime, at some point you tell me there's a 40 to 50 distribution points across the country of Nigeria, mm-hmm. right? You're growing 100% per year. When you go there, how did you set up the business and what were the challenges? Let me talk about less about this, the micro thing, what mm-hmm. we do. Mm-hmm. I'll give you some like, understanding of the micro thing, mm-hmm. why we can do that. Mm-hmm. 
basically the market is kind of like our sales side market. Mm-hmm. It's not only about cars. Many basic consumer products, it's a sales side market. It's shortage of goods. Mm-hmm. If you can provide something cheaper and distribute it more efficiently, you can easily gain customers. You can easily sell your products. For many investors or entrepreneurs from China or from US, you are more used to think about the de- demand side. You need you think more about how we streamline our operations to reach the customer. How do we use some high tech to increase my distribution efficiency or to reach the customer more efficiently? That's past 10 years, 20 years, the Chinese environment mm. trained you because the Chinese market, we have at least abundance of goods, abundance right. of capacity. We have overcapacity in major industrial outputs, in major consumer products. But in Nigeria, in most African countries, it's a shortage of goods. We need to mainly consider about supply side. How do we find something affordable, affordable enough to distribute it to the market or to organize local labor force to manufacture it locally? Mm-hmm. Our major attention right now is still within the supply side. So you ask me, how do we set up? Basically, it's you have the guts to go there. Mm-hmm. You have the basic know-how to sourcing what you want to sell in that market. You have the basic resource to deliver it to the local market. Then you can do it. Mm-hmm. So the, there's really no barrier mm-hmm. for you to enter into the market. If there's some kind of like a barrier, it's more like operation level, like how do I set up a company? How do I find the right guy mm-hmm. to help me get into the kind of like obscured legal system, obscured mm-hmm. business environment? But it's more in a tactical level. If you want to sell, like it's instant food, mm-hmm. you go there, set up a company, trying to source it from China or even like India, mm-hmm. you can do it. You want to sell like clothing, garments, you want to sell like electronics, go there, sell it have the guts to set up a company there, to live there at least like six months a year, mm-hmm. you can do it. There's no real barrier. When you say that there's no real barrier, the biggest barrier is the de- determination, right? To move so, kind of, far, kind of. so far away. So what's the con- composition of the, the startup team or your team or other Chinese companies team right? in terms of local talents versus Chinese talent? It sounds like it's very hard to recruit Chinese talents, but meanwhile, you also need some of the know-how mm-hmm. right, from these Chinese talents that they have acquired in, in China. Mm-hmm. What was that, the, the team and talents composition, how do you think around it? We have been there like for three years. Mm-hmm. At, at the, the first stage, is really like bringing enough Chinese managers, Chinese talents there. But right now, we are shifting our strategy, trying to train more mm-hmm. local not only those like blue collar workers, we're trying to to train more local managers. The key is whether it's from a local empowerment perspective or it's from our own profit-driven perspective. You go to those low-income countries. If you can arrange to organize those like uh, local workers, local managers, it gives you a cost-saving uh, effect. But also, it's much cheaper mm-hmm. to use local people. If we have to bring Chinese talents, Chinese managers, or U.S. Uh, 
talents to the local market, the cost is much higher. So our mentality is like, if we do it again, mm-hmm. at, at day one, we want to focus on train more mm-hmm. local managers, local talents team. That's our mentality. Did you see a, cu- a cultural difference? when you Definitely, get yes. Yeah. In, in what was that? What would be some of the cases? You get? What I can see is definitely not the stereotype. Mm-hmm. Many Chinese people have, there's some stereotype. Mm-hmm. Uh, Chinese think about, oh, African people, they, maybe they don't work hard mm-hmm. enough. They are more enjoying their life. Mm-hmm. Uh, for sure, yes. But uh, I think it's more economics reasons than kind of like cultural reasons. Mm-hmm. If you give like enough incentive, at least in our team, they're working very hard. Mm-hmm. They can still like work in six days a week. They follow the deadline you give them. So the major cultural gap is as a Chinese, you have to overcome your stereotype to understand the subtle difference between their culture and your culture. But mm-hmm. you can implement some like modern management theory on them. You need to overcome your own kind of cultural bias to the local people. I, I can echo with you. Within China, there's the stereotype sometimes can go to extreme and, and we can consider it as racist you know, mm-hmm. thinking. Right? That's also a lack of information exchange and, and because it's somewhat Africa community used to be under the influence of you know, Europe and Western world and, and there's less information flowing to China. And now you have established a foothold in Nigeria. Recently, you told me that you're thinking about you know, expanding or doing some business is in Central Asia. A few months ago, you went to Central Asia. Mm-hmm. Where, where did you go? Kazakhstan. So what was the thinking around that? What we do is related to used cars. We like to look around for all those used car dominant market. I mean, dominant means used car is much bigger than new cars. Mm-hmm. So Central Asia is in that category. So we go there. That's that's my reason. But, and some micro reason is from my friends cycle and from my readings and all the news feeding to me, the Central Asia is in a major shifting towards from a more closed economy to a more open up economy and from a more monopoly dominant local market mm-hmm. to a more market driven market. Mm-hmm. There are some like political reasons, mm-hmm. but the major reason is Central Asia, mm-hmm. let's say, and the whole middle, middle Euro Asia area, Central Asia and the Middle East, are getting more and more important mm-hmm. in current international relationships. Uh, let alone those uh, Ukraine war create a kind of like disruption to dis- the, sub- the opportunity yeah. Yeah. for Central Asia countries to have a more weight the international supply chain logistic. So that's my reason to go to Central Asia. I want to know what's happening there. What's your plan for establishing business in Central Asia? What we actually you- already, I go with another startup. They already started start operation there. Yeah. So my goal is, of course, trying to do something there. And especially the auto market is quite mm-hmm. booming. Got it. You went Southeast Asia, Africa, Central Asia, but you didn't mention advanced countries. Right. Yeah, that's not my interest anymore. Why? Yeah. Let alone the political and the inter- international relationships. Mm-hmm. We cannot think long-term, really long-term, 
let's say in U.S. market, even TikTok, don't know what's the next day will happen. Mm-hmm. How we are a smaller business, how can we think really long term? It's not that stable anymore. Mm-hmm. Maybe there are some bias in it, mm-hmm. but that's my kind of like prediction. Like mm-hmm. we cannot think really long term in those markets. That's one reason. The second reason is we need to find a, somewhere really lead us. Like as a Chinese, what we have a strongest industrial supply chain mm-hmm. in the world. Mm-hmm. China has come redundant already. Mm-hmm. For European, for US, all the international supply chain used to rotate around those markets. Mm-hmm. They don't have like the, the lack of uh, goods, really the industrial outputs. Mm-hmm. Even it's from China, from Mexico, from South Asia. They have a very established channel going to European and the US market. They have very strong local player, I mean, demand side player, like distributors, trading forms, a very strong local, local business community. They are doing it very well. They have like the best companies in the world. Mm-hmm. It's not an underserved market. It's overserved market like mm-hmm. China right. in different ways. So what I'm trying to identify is really underserved market. From, from a business perspective, it's much easier to do business, much easier to start a business at least. Mm-hmm. From a social perspective, it's create more value. Mm-hmm. Like you sell someone already have an iPhone, mm-hmm. you, you try to promote a new like a iPhone accessory or try to give her or him another choice of iPhone. It creates some value. Mm-hmm. But if you're trying to sell someone never have a phone, you provide a phone for them, that's quite much more value to their life. So basically that's a, that's my, what I'm really interested in right now. That's the thinking of a Chinese entrepreneur. And the biggest takeaway is that you are now riding on the redundancy of supply in China domestically and trying to find areas where core demand are not met and can be met by Chinese supplies, right? And you identify those regions. Uh, that's a bigger takeaway I have. Um, Thank you, Yipeng, for sharing today. Good luck for your business. I'll talk to you soon.